200 people hauled 70 wagons in a single file caravan through meadows and forests of treeless branches, over dirt roads and narrow wooden bridges built on dry riverbeds. At first, the world with its endless horizons seemed vast in every direction, yet Vidal quickly discovered this vastness was not something to behold, but despise, as the only land he could reach with each step was monotonous grass or dirt, and the western Sierra Nevada mountains ahead grew no closer, no matter how many hours they marched forward. If Vidal wished to take another look back at Granada, he needed only to turn around and look past the 40-yard wagons behind him to see the vague impression of the city walls and the architecture of La Alhambra perched atop the city like a watchful guardian. Only now that he'd left did the view of the city tempt him to return, for every step away from Granada was a step away from Catalina and Sarah. The whole point of writing this book was that it wasn't famous, was that I wanted to tell the story that I felt hadn't been told. And once I realized that, it started to click that that's who this character is. Hello, and welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm your host, Colin Mustful, and today I am delighted to be joined by Eric Z. Weintraub, author of the novel South of Sephirod. The Inquisition actually lasted until the 1800s and was a, uh, it's a major uh, dark point in Spain's history. Eric C. Weintraub earned an MFA in creative writing from Mount St. Mary's University, where he wrote his debut novel, South of Sephirod. Growing up in Los Angeles, California, he came from a family of filmmakers, writers, and educators, stirring in him a passion for storytelling from a young age. His short fiction has appeared in Tabula Rasa Review, Halfway Down the Stairs, The Rush, and elsewhere. His novella, Dreams of an American Exile, won the 2015 Plaza Literary Prize and was published by Black Hill Press. His short story collection, The 28th Parallel, was a finalist for the 2021 Flannery O'Connor Award in Short Fiction. When not writing fiction, Eric profiles true stories of complex medical cases where he works at the Keck School of Medicine of USC. Today, I'll be talking to Eric about his debut novel, South of Sephirod. I'd like you to start with giving us a little bit of historical context for this novel, South of Sephirod. Specifically, could you talk about the Alhambra Decree and what that was? Of course. So the Alhambra Decree was issued in um, late March of 1492, and it was issued shortly after uh, Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand overtook the Kingdom of Granada, thus um, completing their reconquest of the Iberian Peninsula, what we today know as Spain, and driving the Muslim rulers out of Spain. And the Alhambra Decree, what they, what it was, was they had, um, they decided that they were going to get rid of Judaism in the Iberian Peninsula now that it was their kingdom and they wanted to make it a Christian kingdom. 
So the decree gave every Jew in Iberia a choice. They could either convert to Christianity and continue to live on the peninsula, or they could leave Spanish shores never to return. And anybody who refused to obey this decree would be put to death. That would be uh, a very difficult decision. Tell me about the characters you created to kind of humanize this history. I'm speaking, of course, of Vidal and his family. So who are they and how and why did you create them? Sure. So the the novel with the Alhambra Decree is about a, the main character is Vidal, who is a physician and father of five who lives in Granada. And he finds out about the decree at the beginning of the novel. And he basically has to make this big choice. Is he going to convert to Catholicism so he can remain in his home in Granada and continue his practice? Or is he going to leave Spain and take his family into what could be a very dangerous exile? And um, ultimately, he decides that it's worth it to leave Spain because he doesn't trust that his family will be safe, even if they do stay. And this is a he's a fictional character, but the circumstances that he faces are very real or were real to the time. And the reason I created Vidal was because I wanted to put a human face to the situation of should someone convert to Catholicism or, or should they leave? And there really aren't a lot of stories that survive about the generation of Jews who had to go through this, this journey and this decision. So by making him into a, a person and a, a character, I could start to explore what the human aspect of this story could be like. Well, that makes me a little bit curious about how you got to know him because writers, as their story develops, so do their characters. So can you talk a little bit about how his character changed over time as you got to know him better? Of course. So what I decided was I didn't want to do too much pre-writing for this story just because I find that I, I know a lot of people like to do the, the pre-writing character worksheets. I, I find they don't work for me as well. They feel more like homework. But what I felt was that with Vidal, right off the bat, I had someone who was an interesting character, who's this um, Jewish physician in the Middle Ages, and he has a very impossible dilemma in front of him, which is uh, which is facing the Alhambra decree. And really, I just allowed him to go on this journey and and see what his reaction would be. When I first started writing the novel, I didn't even know if he was going to decide to leave. I thought maybe he will convert early on the novel, and the novel will be about him converting and about his life in Spain after that. But ultimately, as I got to that point, I felt that there was enough reason for him to leave. And so from there, it was all about following this character on this journey into where they're going. I will say that writing something this way by not having all these ideas planned out ahead of time, uh, it can lead some, it could lead taking some time to understand the character. I think if you were to read my very first draft, Vidal would be very principled. He was very much like, I am a doctor and I'm going to remain Jewish and that's that. And that can create a very consistent character, but it doesn't always create a very, it, can, it doesn't always create a very interesting character. So what I decided was that I needed to do more things to challenge him. And over time, this idea of is leaving really the best choice is holding on to your faith, no matter what, really the best choice for him and his family so as I was able to sort of throw these obstacles at him, obstacles that were based on um, obstacles that were based on history and based on research, I was able to more understand the kind of person he is. And over time, in a few drafts, that is the Vidal that you see in this novel. 
Some of the early reviews really seem to like his wife, Bonadonna. Can you talk a little bit about who she is and how you developed her as a character? Bonadonna's actually become my favorite character too. So with Bonadonna, I think she's my favorite character because she was actually the hardest character to write because I wanted to give her her own agency within this um, middle age world. And so what I realized was that she could almost be a sort of antagonist to Vidal. Vidal really wants to leave Spain and he thinks that's the best choice for his family. But with his wife, Bonadonna, um, she actually thinks that this is a really bad idea. It's it's really dangerous to go to another country. They won't speak the language. They don't know anybody. Um, and she really wants to stay in Spain where she's established this whole life for herself. And But for some reason, for a long time as I was writing that, it became very difficult. I, I feel like a lot of early readers didn't understand Bonadonna or didn't like Bonadonna because in a way she was she was kind of mean. Um, and actually as 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 you are the editor of this novel, as we were working on the edits, one thing you told me is that she needs to be nicer. And it took me a while to figure out, it took me a while to figure out how to make her nicer, how to still give her this own agency. But then I realized that this whole time I had been writing her that she just wants to stay, but really she wants to stay for her kids and she wants to stay to protect her children. And once I realized that, it started to click that that's who this character is. And if people like Bonadonna, um, I think it's because she really has her own side of the story and hopefully a very convincing reason for why she wants to stay. But she does leave anyways, because in that time period, uh, unfortunately, that was the, 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 the wives obeyed the husbands and she had no choice but to leave. And I felt that that was a very interesting dilemma for her to be brought along on this journey while also trying to maintain some agency of her own. Yeah, I think she really illuminates the difficult decisions that they were faced with. Not even, they were hopeless decisions. You, you, you couldn't make a right choice. You just had to try to do what was best for you and your faith and your family. And I think Bonadonna kind of really illustrates how difficult those decisions were. And I think that's why readers are really connecting with her um, because they help her understand this story and just the basic humanity of it. Uh, involved in all of that was also Catalina, who was known as a converso who had converted to Christianity and decided to, you know, I don't want to give away too much, but had decided to stay behind. Can you talk about conversos during this time period and the inquisition that kind of followed the alhambra decree of course so being a converso seemed on paper like a very safe idea if you wanted to remain in spain you would convert to catholicism give up your judaism and then you would be accepted to the community um, you'd be a first-class citizen um, so it could actually be in some respects a very attractive opportunity um, Catalina in particular actually does it for marriage. She marries into a, a, a Catholic family. But being a converso often came with a lot of problems. One was that, and one of the main ones that's even outlined in the Alhambra decree, is that the Spanish rulers didn't trust the conversos. They didn't trust that they had actually converted. They believed that a lot of them were just practicing their Judaism in secret, or that they were even trying to convert others in secret. Um, this is all even... Uh, said in the Alhambra decree as a reason for why they wanted to get rid of the Jews. So as part of that, 
came the idea of the Spanish Inquisition. Um, Ferdinand and Isabella believed that they were having a major problem with not just the Jews, but also the conversos who they believed had um, who they believed were not being truthful in their conversion. So they decided that they were going to basically root them out by creating this inquisition that was approved um, by Pope uh, Sixtus IV in, I believe, 1474. And this was done to establish tribunals all over the country and find out if people were really devout or if they were lying. And if they were lying and they weren't really, if they weren't really Christian, um, this would create major problems for them, including torture and execution. And this South of Sephiroth documents some of the early moments of the Inquisition, but the Inquisition actually lasted until the 1800s and was a, uh, it's a major uh, dark point in Spain's history. Can you talk about what it means to be a Sephardic Jew? Because the novel is called South of Sephiroth. Uh, what do, what is that? What kind of sect of Judaism is that? Can you describe it a little bit? Of course. So, um, for those who don't know, Sephirad means Spain in Hebrew, and there are a few different sects of Judaism. Um, probably the most uh, probably the most well known is, is Ashkenazi Judaism, which is um, Judaism that hails from sort of uh, Europe and Eastern Europe. This is where many uh, people spread out after the banishment from Jerusalem in the year seventy. And but there was also people who went to Spain, and those people are part of the Sephardim, and they are so Sephardic Jews were Jews that were kicked out of Spain are now considered part of the Sephardic diaspora. Um, so basically, it really has mostly to do with location, um, of course, because some Jews were living in Spain and some Jews were living in Eastern Europe. Some of the traditions have changed, and people will um, attitudes are a little different. Some traditions are a little different. Um, but overall, it is coming from the same religion. And also, Ashkenazi and Sephardic are not the only two sects of the, of the religion. There are many others, um, just Sephardic and Ashkenazi probably are most represented. Can you talk a little more about uh, broadly about the diaspora of Jews uh, that resulted from the 1492 Alhambra decree uh, in the novel Vidal and his family see in you know, the caravan they seek out to go to Morocco. Uh, what did other Jews do that left Granada? So the Jews that left Spain went to several different places. Uh, many did go to Morocco, which as is portrayed in the novel, but actually it was even more common to go to Portugal because Portugal was the one part of the Iberian Peninsula that um, if Isabel and Ferdinand had interest in conquering it, they didn't act upon it. So Portugal remained its own kingdom. And the Jews of Spain did go there and they were able to live there for um, a few years before Spain then decided to kick them out also. Um, at, at one point I had thought about writing the novel and having them go to Portugal and then having them kicked out again, but I realized it was quickly going to become a thousand page book if I did that. Um, other places that they went were also Italy. Uh, the Ottoman Empire was known for being especially nice to them when they arrived. Um, but really all over, anywhere that is connected to the Mediterranean, some way they went, and um, they're still all over the world today. I want to talk about your research, uh, specifically about Vidal, who's a physician in 1492, and you have some really great scenes of his practice and the resources that are available to him and kind of him with limited resources because they're on a caravan, um, him kind of deciding what he can and can't do for his patients. 
tell me about the research you did into medical practices at that time. Yeah. So really the thing that helped, I originally tried to go straight to the sources that Vidal would have gone to, which was that at this time, there was a um, Muslim philosopher named Avicenna, who was who basically created the idea of the four humors. Um, and it was basically a large part of uh, medicine for centuries until maybe modern medicine. But I realized, tried to read his work, that it was vast and hard to understand. And I was like, I could read this to say I read it. And I did read portions of it, but I'm probably not totally understanding this. I need to be realistic about this. So I was lucky that I found a, another book um, called um, Medieval Medicine, The Art of Healing from Head to Toe that really took Avicenna's work and works from other different sort of medieval physicians and condensed it for and presented it to the modern readers such as myself. So this was really helpful and I was able to figure out what sort of what sort of herbs would they use? How would they perform a surgery? One thing I was very interested in, um, there's a surgery scene towards the end of the novel and I was trying to figure out how do they perform surgery before the discovery of anesthesia? So these were the kinds of things that I found. And it was really fun to research because I'm a, I'm a medical writer by trade and I'm always having to research things that the doctors at the medical school where I work are doing. So this almost felt like just another way to research a different subspecialty, just this subspecialty happens to be from the Middle Ages. Um, you wrote this novel, or you started it during your MFA program. Can you tell us how valuable that program was to you and your development as a writer? Oh, I felt the program was extremely valuable. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about whether someone should get an MFA, whether that's the right move. And I can't speak for everyone because, you know, MFAs can be really expensive. Um, and they could take up a lot of your time. But for me, an MFA, I went to I went to the Mount St. Mary's University MFA um, in Los Angeles. And it was great, A, because this MFA was specifically designed for people who work full time. So I was able to not just learn the habits of, of being a working writer, but also find a way to build the habits into my life. Um, I know a lot of MFAs, you sort of, you know, a lot of you take two years off and you write full time which I think is really great, but then it could be it could be really hard to apply that work in those principles once you um, get back to having a full-time job, for example. And I think that the MFA helped teach me a lot. It helped me with um, being more widely read. And I think the thing that it helped the most with was building habits. It took a, I never really written or attempted a novel before. It just seemed too vast. But I realized through the MFA program, this might sound simple now, but it's just one step at a time keep going, hit your deadlines, um, and eventually you will get there. So I had a very positive MFA experience. And I think that if someone is looking to get an MFA, um, do it for the right reasons, do it to learn. But uh, it was it was very beneficial to finishing this novel. And what were some of those habits that you were then able to incorporate into your process after you completed the program? I think the most important one is, is meeting your deadlines. And I could actually talk a little bit about um, when I was doing the first round of edits that you gave me when you said you were going to publish the novel, uh, at first I was a little afraid because I was thinking these edits are going to be, whatever I do for these edits, that's going to be the book that people read. It's it's no more like, you know, I could keep it hidden to myself, like this is going out there. And I was nervous for a second and I reminded myself, you know what, this is just another, it's just another day in the MFA program. It's just another day of, uh, it's just another final, another thing to be submitted. 
And that helped me take the pressure off myself and remind myself that we can overthink ourselves out of writing these projects all together, but really it's just about, you know, putting your head down, doing the work. And if you, if you do the work and you work hard at it, you'll, you'll finish it and it will, it'll be good. Well, it was good. I had no idea that you were nervous about some of those revisions that I asked you to make. So, um, well, job well done. Oh, thank you. Tell me about your family and how your family um, kind of influenced your eventual path here to becoming a writer. So I actually come from a family of educators and what I call working artists. Um, and I think that's something that a lot of people don't think about when they think about working artists. They think that someone either has to be like a, a rich painter or rich uh, film producer, stuff like that. But um, I don't come from that kind of family. But my so my father was a um, news cameraman for KCAL 9, which uh, for people who aren't from LA is sort of our local division of CBS. And my mother uh, has done lots of short form documentaries for education. Um, she runs a 501c3 nonprofit that is a um, that is includes a documentary web series. And so they're still working artists. These aren't, um, you know, they still go to their jobs every day, but they're still pursuing this. And I think that was a big influence for me because I think a lot of people, they think that, oh, it's too hard to be a novelist. You know, you have to, you don't have the time, you have the money, things like that. And I don't think that's true. Just you have to, you have to make the time for it. And you may not make a lot of money doing it, but if it's something that you love, you have to pursue it. So that was, you know, from a young age, I always knew that there was, there was a way to do art, even if it even if it wasn't necessarily something that was going to um, pay the bills or be this huge career, but just to go in this direction and, and, and keep going the way they did and are still doing. That's, that's fantastic. Uh, we've talked about this before, but for listeners who haven't heard your story of your submission process, could you talk about what that was like for you and some of the specifics of how you eventually got published? So I think I first found out about history through fiction through Twitter of all places. And you guys seemed like exactly what I was looking for because you were looking for, you were looking for what I feel to put in a genre would be straight literary fiction that is historical. It didn't necessarily need the, um, the young adult twist or the romance twist that I think a lot of um, historical fiction requires. And so I was really excited to submit to you, but at the time I found you weren't open for novel submissions, but you were open for short story submissions. So I decided that I was going to take a small part of the novel, probably about 10 pages and submit it as a novel excerpt and, and just see how that went. I felt it would be a way to introduce myself. I didn't even know if, if History Through Fiction would publish it, but I hope that I could at least introduce my project and hopefully make you a little aware of what I was doing. And I got very lucky that you liked the the excerpt. And and then as we were editing that and getting ready for it to go go out and be published, um, I asked if I sent you a query letter for the entire manuscript. And um, I think you read the query letter in the first 10 pages as publishers do. And then you asked for a full read, which I was very excited about. And I sent it to you. And then um, it was Thanksgiving weekend when you finally accepted it. And I think uh, within that week, that was when you published the excerpt. So it was really exciting to get an excerpt published for a novel that was going to come out in a year, year and a half or so. 
did you have to go through a lot of rejections? Did you submit to agents initially and then go to publishers? How did that work for you? I did. I, I submitted to a lot of people. And I think that part part of it, I think the reason I submitted so to so many people was that I was just trying to figure out how it worked for myself. Um, a lot of places want historical fiction, but I didn't realize till I was submitting to more of them that actually, like I was saying earlier, they want it with that genre twist um, or, or they want it to be written about a very famous historical figure, which um, the whole point of writing this book was that it wasn't famous, was that I wanted to tell the story that I felt hadn't been told. Um, so it was a lot of trial and error. Um, I was I had a very positive experience in the sense that no one ever wrote me back and sent any nasty emails. I've, I've heard that that could be a common thing. I've, I'm lucky I didn't experience that. Um, a lot of people said this is interesting, but it's just not right for me, or I don't have time for it, or I don't know how to market it, uh, which is fine, but it, but it kept me going. And I think it was my, this is hard because as an artist, we always have that self-doubt, but it was my belief that if I just keep going, if I just keep sending this out, eventually I'll, I'll find someone who will publish it. And I realized in hindsight that I was, I might've just been looking for a publisher, but I think with History Through Fiction, I was looking to find the right publisher. And I, I think that I can't really imagine the book being published by anyone else because I think that it, it fits the mission statement of what History Through Fiction is going for. Now, History Through Fiction is a very small kind of niche press, uh, but you do have a traditional contract in which the author doesn't have to, isn't required to put forth any money toward the publication of the novel. For those who are listening, who are looking for a press, are looking for an agent, uh, and are kind of aren't sure which direction to go, do I go with the big five? You know, do I try to get an agent? Do I go with a small press? Do I go with a hybrid press? Maybe do I self-publish? Can you just give a little bit of what your experience has been like working with a small niche press like History Through Fiction? I think it's it's been a very positive experience. And I, I think the reason is that I never felt like a hog in a machine here. Um, I've had some friends who've been published by um, bigger places in New York, and it's very much like uh, they don't hear back from the editor. Or then, you know, once it's time for the book to come out, you're kind of on your own. It's not like they, it's not like they do a bunch of marketing for you. Um, you have to market yourself. But what I felt with with going with your press is that I had a chance to. I had a chance to work with you directly. I had a chance to decide on marketing strategies that History Through Fiction was going to do and ones that I was going to do. And it's very helpful that um, South of Sephiroth is not just a book in in you know the spring catalog with along with 30 other books. This is uh, the only book that uh, you guys are publishing until May, I believe. So it helps to have a little more focus, especially as a writer who's starting out It'd be very hard to navigate the literary world completely on my own, hoping that the publisher would help and, and they're not doing that as much. So I, I think it's a very positive experience um, to be able to do this and work more directly because it, it tells me more about the publishing side and more about uh, marketing and editing than I think you get if you're just uh, trying to get, you know, maybe Random House or HarperCollins to publish your book. Yeah, I think we had a good collaboration in the cover design. You know, our, our designer does such a great job. And the initial cover, I think, was yellow and blue or something. I thought it was quite brilliant, but you had kind of mentioned it didn't really represent the themes of the novel. And so we ended up with the kind of the darker reds and, and yellows and blacks. 
And you also brought up a very specific point about the direction of the doves. Can you talk a little bit about the input you were able to give in in the cover design? Of course. So I hope I I hope I didn't annoy Christine too much with my uh, um, with my suggestions because I think that the the cover work she did is absolutely outstanding. I've gotten a lot of compliments on it. Um, I'm very very happy with it. So basically, the cover right now is uh, basically shown at sunset. It is a dark cover, and originally the cover was more blue and yellow. It was a very warm and inviting cover, and it was still um, the picture of the Alhambra as as you see in this cover. Um, and as much as I liked the cover, I knew that this was also the story of a tragedy. And a tragedy that happened a long time ago, but nevertheless, a tragedy and a tragedy that some readers may come across and wonder why this cover is maybe too cheery. So it was important to really capture the fact, the, the weight of this event and what it means. And in terms of, so the doves in the current cover now go from they're flying from right to left but in the original cover they they flew from left to right and this is a weird like art filmmaking theory thing that i heard about um but when a subject is going left to right in frame it it represents ease but when a subject is going right to left in frame it's it um symbolizes hardship and so i felt that a small detail but i felt it would be good to flip the way the birds were going so that rather than showing a, you know, them being free, them being, you know, flying off, um, it shows, I think, on a hopefully subconscious level that they're fleeing, which is really what um, the Jews of Spain did. So it's a small detail, but I think that it, I think that the cover takes on a, a bit of a darker tone, a bit of a more, um, uh, maybe even sadder tone, but I think that it strikes the right tone for someone who's about to enter this novel. Yeah, and that's input that I could have never given that our cover designer wouldn't have known. So I think that's, you know, one of the advantages you talked about of working with a small press like us is is being able to give that input. In. And it's an advantage for us as well to be able to create stories, narratives, uh, designs that really represent the history that, that we're talking about. So I have a question for you since we're talking about the, the editing and uh, putting out the book. So we've talked a lot about you as publisher, but can we talk a little bit about the editing process that you had on this book? And what I'm really curious about is you, you gave such great notes and I want to know, is that those notes come from an instinct or is there some sort of methodology you're following? Can you speak to that? Well, first of all, when, when I'm reviewing manuscripts for potential publication, so before I've offered a contract, I have kind of a view in my mind of what I think the story can be because and and I don't know how many readers and writers know this when you submit to um, your novel your manuscript to a publisher even if you've edited it 15 times the publisher is always going to want to go through and, and edit it again and the same thing happened with yours I mean it, it, it fit everything that we were looking for but there were some things that I believed could strengthen the manuscript. So I keep those in the back of my mind as I'm reading that, reading through the manuscript and trying to decide if I want to offer this author a contract. Now, in your case, I did offer you a contract, but then I said, well, and actually we were with you as a little different. We were, I was able to give you some specific, some notes that you were able to do a revision and then send it back to me. And then 
I was able to look through it and do a more careful kind of developmental edit. And we picked out things such as the character Bonadonna in order to make her a more rounded, uh, more likable or, you know, a character that fit better into the narrative. And we were also able to strengthen some of the emotional aspects of the novel with the, the scene early on in the novel with the, the death of his daughter, Sarah. Um, but yeah, those those things I'm always looking for right away as I'm reviewing the manuscripts. And then if I when once I sign an author to a contract, then I do a very careful, extensive developmental edit. As far as my notes are concerned, those come from my own personal personal experience. Uh, one thing is I do have an MFA in creative writing, so that helps me to really understand the craft elements of fiction and be able to recognize and then convey or communicate to the author, these are the craft elements we need to work on here. And, um, and that helps me, just having that background, that educational background helps me articulate what those craft elements are. But I also was an, was an author before I ever became a publisher. I saw, I've published five novels. And when you, when you publish a novel, you, you get a lot of feedback, a lot of critique, and, that, and not all of it is easy to digest. And with some of those experiences I've had, I try to, to come at it uh, with a little bit of empathy and compassion because I know what authors go through. They spend years and years of their lives putting these stories together, and they're good stories, but even the best story can be improved from another an outsider coming in and being able to, to look at it objectively. So when I'm communicating those messages, I always try to lead with something positive and then offer constructive criticism that's easy to understand and, and even easier to incorporate where, yes, you might have the option to whether or not you want to take in an editorial comment of mine, but I try to convey it in such a way that you wouldn't even think to to not include it. Um, so there is a bit of a craft to that to that editorial process itself and being able to effectively communicate w what changes will make the story better um, and make the author actually feel better about their work and more confident in what they've created. Well, I really feel like the notes that you offered me, even though I said earlier that they I was scared as I was doing it, um, I I really feel that those notes made the novel better. I think that, the novel that's going out, I really feel is the best version we could have possibly put out. Um, and so I, I'm very grateful for those notes and that you knew very um, specifically what needed to be fixed to elevate it to the next level. Yeah, I agree. And like I said earlier, the the, the initial reviews have all been very good. And that's that's rewarding, I'm sure, for you. But it's rewarding for me, too, because I'm, you know, I take a risk every time I take on an author, take on a story, and it, it, it represents it represents our brand and uh, just how far our brand can go moving forward, depending on the re the reception of each one of these stories. This is your, your debut. Are you thinking of something else? Are you working on something else? What's down the, the road for you? So I'm working on actually what's now the second draft of a new novel. Um, this novel isn't historical fiction. It, it takes place in present day. Um, but there are other ideas that are starting to percolate for a new historical fiction novel. There was a lot of research that went into this novel. And while I don't plan to do anything else related to the expulsion, there were other figures that I heard about from pre-Inquisition Spain that I find really interesting and would consider doing a novel about them down the road. But um, 
I know it's it's a lot of research. It's another huge mountain to climb, but um, I'm looking forward to getting into it and hopefully in the next couple of years. Well, Eric, uh, congratulations on South of Sephirod. We're so glad to have you as a history through fiction author. And thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for having me.